Welcome to Animal Cafe, where you'll hear weekly interviews with experts and enthusiasts working to better the lives of animals, and a monthly segment reviewing fun, fabulous, and useful products for your pets. Check our website, animalcafe.co, for more. Hi there. Today we're going to talk to Andrea Arden, the author of five books, including the newly released Baron's Dog Training Bible. She's also written Dog Friendly Dog Training and can be seen on Animal Planet's Dogs 101, Cats 101, Pets 101, and Underdog to Wonder Dog. Uh, Andrea is also the founder and owner of Andrea Arden New York Puppy and Adult Dog Training in Manhattan. So um, she's also a dear friend, and I'm very happy to have her here today. Welcome, Andrea. Well, thank you for having me, Kelly. I know you're very busy, so I really appreciate you taking the time to chat a little bit. I'm not that busy. The, the only thing I would like to be doing now more than this is being downstairs at the animal shelter playing with the new litter of puppies. But other than that, all is good. <laughs> oh, we didn't talk about the animal shelter in your, in your intro there. What are, you, what are you doing at the animal shelter? Um, I'm on the board of directors of Animal Haven in New York City. We're located in Soho, which is downtown. And um, in addition to being on the board of directors, I also volunteer my time um, doing things like playing with puppies cleaning litter boxes, and um, helping with behavioral assessments and training. Oh, that's cool. So you're a board member that actually does hands-on work as well. I love that. Yes. It's not yes. always the case. <laughs> <laughs> Oops, did I just say that? Sorry. Okay. <laughs> you notice I just giggled. I'm not responding. <laughs> no, it's fantastic, though. And, and Animal Haven is a, is a wonderful organization. So that's very wonderful. Let's see. Uh, today, I thought we would talk about the rules of dog training. Now, you know that can go a lot of ways. Um, what does that? What do we mean by rules? I don't know. Do we want to talk about the rules for dogs in dog training, or human rules when training a dog? I think maybe we can. Maybe we can even touch a little bit on both of those things. So yeah, I mean, I go ahead. Oh, sorry. Go no, ahead. you go ahead. No, you go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I definitely think that. Um, as a starting point, I think it's far more important for people to consider the rules that they need to set for themselves in regards to how they're going to approach teaching their dogs and caring for their dogs. Um, because I think if you don't have a sort of mindset, you know, about how you're going to approach helping your dog to really become the best dog they can be and the best dog for your family, then I don't think it's fair to expect them to follow rules. No, exactly. I, I love that. And people, you know, with open paw, um, my organization, we talk about rules and expectations that you have um, for dog for for living with a companion, a dog companion. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I mean there's so many you know components to setting realistic expectations and setting rules in your mind for how your family should behave in order to help your dog behave. Um, but I think in a nutshell, it really comes down to first and foremost that I think one of the biggest mistakes that people make with their dogs is setting incredibly unrealistic expectations for their dogs. Mm, like you know? what? Such as? Well, I mean, you know, on the one hand, we always talk uh, about how dogs, uh, you know, obviously are so wonderful and they can accomplish things that are incredible that um, really are awe-inspiring and that help us um, in so many ways, such as search and rescue dogs and service dogs. But I think when it comes to pet dogs, people really do tend to fall prey to what a lot of us call the, the Lassie syndrome, 
you know, they assume that a dog is going to walk in the door and because they're such social creatures and they have such a long history of being so bonded with people and helping people in so many ways that they just assume that the dog is walking in the door like with a rule book that it's already read, knowing how to behave. Oh, absolutely. Um, Yeah, good point. Yeah, and then I think what happens is, you know, Obviously, the dog is in that sense set up to fail because they don't walk in the door knowing what to do. And then, of course, frustration ensues both on the part of the family and the dog. And that frustration, unfortunately, oftentimes leads to why dogs are surrendered to shelters because people walk in the door with a dog and they say, you know, he's he's stubborn or I can't house train him or he barks too much and my neighbors are complaining. And, you know, you want to say to them, well, did you, you know, consider that you need to help this dog to learn how it is you want them to behave? Um, but I think people get frustrated so quickly because of a, a lack of realistic expectations that they give up oftentimes on their dogs. No, it's a very good point. I like how you, you mentioned the Lassie syndrome. I, people, I, I think people do believe that dogs come um, with this altruistic kind of agenda into our lives, you know, as our as our saviors and you know and and, and help helpers, but. You know, dogs are dogs are dogs, and they're beautiful for what they are. But I think that the bubble can be burst so easily and so early on when when a dog acts like a dog rather than you know, let's say you know, a, an angel or a superhero. Yeah, and I also think that you know, because in so many ways, dogs do things that are so cool. I mean, and again, that help us so much that we forget that ultimately, just like us. Dogs are, in many ways, selfish creatures, and that word selfish is not necessarily negative. I mean, selfish is really about survival, you know, doing things and acting in ways that bode well for an individual's survival. And in the case of a a dog, oftentimes that means that they come programmed to, you know, guard resources that they consider valuable or to grab food because, you know, they're not necessarily sure when the next round of food is going to come. And so... You know, we have to teach them how to be mannerly, how to understand that resources are not in limited supply, that, you know, they don't need to guard them. And in fact, giving up resources to people, like when somebody reaches to take a bone away, is nothing to cause concern, Um, that they need to have impulse control. They don't need to lunge and grab at food in somebody's hand or when it's put on a coffee table. Um, Those are all things that, you know, are at really the foundation of creating a dog who's mannerly and to use a more old fashioned term, obedient. Mm, absolutely. And these are things that dogs don't necessarily, as you said, come programmed um, to to do already. In fact, in some yeah. cases, it's counter to their, their own intuition, such as with the resource guarding. Uh, I like to say that, you know, every dog must, you know, if they didn't, if they didn't have any, any inkling of resource guarding, and they probably wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't have survived back in, you know, back in the day. And I don't even mean back in prehistoric times. I mean, just on the farm, you know, just, just go back a hundred years where dogs were living a different life. So, um, what do you, what do you think are some real realistic expectations when somebody brings home a dog, a new dog, what are the realistic expectations and, or what are the expectations where you see, uh, people have failed. I mean, you're, right now you're at Animal Haven. Animals come in generally because there's a breakdown in the relationship. And where do you see that happening most frequently? I would say without a doubt it most frequently happens in regards to house training. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I hear somebody say, you know, on a message at our dog training school or when I meet them in person at a dog event that they're so frustrated because their puppy is three or four months old and he's still not house trained. And it's really hard for me not to... You know, just want to take them and give them a little shake and say, 
you know, how could you possibly expect a creature that's been on this earth for only three or four months to understand clearly and reliably where it's supposed to eliminate? Let you know, it's just have the physical yeah. ability at that age. Exactly. Yes. And then they, as I'm sure you know, they oftentimes follow up with, well, I had a dog before and he was house trained at three months old <laughs> or my friend's dog was. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, that is, I think, one of the places where people tend also to become most frustrated most easily. Um, and surprisingly, I find that people become more frustrated with dogs who are not house trained, who piddle on their carpet than dogs who aggress towards them. Isn't and I'm not sure why. Yeah, that's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it could be, it could be because I think maybe people, um, are more willing to make excuses for dogs who behave aggressively, you know, that, well, I think maybe he was abused when he was younger or, you know, I think he's unhappy, but when it comes to house training, they jump to the conclusion that the dog is going to the bathroom in different places because he's spiteful. Yeah, no, absolutely. Hmm. Yeah. So what do you think would, are the, are the top five realistic expectations that people can have for their, you know, their, their family dog. And well, well, let's start with that first. What do do you think people should expect? Um, I think that people's top priorities are and and should be. Um, Number one is usually house training. Number two is having a dog who doesn't nip or bite and play. Um, number three is having a dog who can be left alone and the dog is not um, excessively barky or destructive. Um, number four is having a dog who is friendly when greeting people. And I would say number five is that people um, expect that their dog will come back to them when called. Oh, those are great. Now, and so these are realistic from your point of view, and I agree, but these are things that um, we have to teach dogs, no? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, as, as any dog trainer will attest, probably one of the, the underlying causes of people not following through on um, training is that they tend to kill with kindness. So, for example, in regards to house training, you know, people allow a dog to wander loose in the house because they feel bad keeping it on leash and supervised when they're there or confining it to a crate for short periods of time. They think that, you know, limiting the the puppy or the dog's freedom that way is cruel. Um, When, of course, from the perspective of somebody who's a trainer and who works with a shelter, you know, I think that one of the most unkind things you can do is to um, fail to manage your dog and get them house trained because oftentimes it leads to them being surrendered to a shelter. So the human component is essential to the success of the dog in the home. Absolutely. I mean, I I know that, um, you know, especially when it comes to breed-related issues, um, when people have concerns with different breeds of dogs and, you know, is it genetics or is it the way that the dog is nurtured? I think that anyone, um, you know, who has experience with dogs would say that there's um, a balance between the two, you know, nature versus nurture. But when it comes to basic manners, such as house training and greeting people politely and coming back when called, um, you know, certainly the the length of time it might take to instill those behaviors and make them reliable varies from dog to dog. But ultimately, you know, 99% of the time, it really comes down to the fact that when a dog is not mannerly, is not obedient, it really is a failure on the part of the family. It seems like sometimes because, so having these expectations that your dog will behave in a, in a way that's compatible with, you know, our human lifestyle is, is okay, but we do have to put in our, you know, our efforts to make sure that the dog learns our ways because they are, after all, a different species with different agendas and different likes and 
you know, a different, a very different idea about what might be socially acceptable. I mean, think of, you know, butt sniffing for greeting alone. Um, you know, it's, it's, we live in, we live, uh, we're on the same planet, but we live in different worlds. But it, it seems that because people, I don't know, people think that dogs should automatic. it seems people think dogs should automatically do things for us because we love them or because they love us, uh, because we feed them. Do you get much of that? People saying, well, you know, I, they should just do these things. They, they, you know, they know that they should do these things. Yeah. I mean, I think to take that a step further, I think that, um, you know, there's a certain irony to the fact that people oftentimes consider dogs part of the family and almost like, you know, little fur creatures, uh-huh. you know, we, uh-huh. we now refer to people as pet parents, um, you know, and dogs and cats and other companion animals are like our children. Um, and yet on the other hand, we don't give them the um, respect of understanding that they have personal preferences um, and that they have feelings and, you know, concerns about different situations. And we kind of make the assumption that dogs across the board, again, going back to that Lassie syndrome, should all be like Lassie. You know, really- and, and when, you, when somebody says to me, um, you know, it's really weird. My dog doesn't like certain dogs when I walk down the street, and I just don't understand it. You know, my response is oftentimes, well, I don't necessarily like everybody I meet, so why would you assume that your dog would? No, it's very, very true, and I love that you use the word respect uh, as far as, you know, respecting this other creature in our home. Uh, it, it's amazing. Uh, what, do you, what do you say to people when they, when they do have these unrealistic expectations? I mean, they say, you know, he's being spiteful or, you know, he's, he's being dominant or, you know, he, or you, they do expect their dog to politely greet every single person and every dog that they meet or to accept every situation. How do you address that in your private practice? Um, you know, I try and use a lot of analogies. I try, um, which you maybe can't tell from this conversation, but <laughs> I try and have a sense of humor about it and be playful and make jokes um, because I do think that when you get people to giggle a little bit, um, sometimes at you, but also sometimes at themselves, it opens them up to being more receptive to your point of view and what you're trying to teach them. Um, so for example, if I go into somebody's home and, you know, I walk in the door and, you know, they're already, I can tell really angry and frustrated with their dog. And, you know, let's say it's a little puppy and they're, you know, spouting off about how, oh, it's, it's a bad puppy. He's so spiteful. You know, I'll sit there and make a joke about the fact that, you know, the puppy, let's count how many days the puppy has been on this earth and let's consider what, you know, we might've behaved like when we were that age. Um, and if somebody had expected us to have, you know, excellent behavior, um, when we were two years old. Um, clearly that would be considered incredibly unrealistic. Mm-hmm. Yet we do, do do that with our dogs. Again, it goes back to the Lassie syndrome. Uh, okay, yes. so we've discussed what the, what the basic rules for dogs you know, should be in a, in a pet home, in a companion home. But what about the humans? What, what do you think, what's, what are the top five expectations for humans that are training dogs or living with dogs? Do we have expectations for them as well? Well, I mean, there's kind of two ways of answering that. One is I think, um, I, I feel like I'm getting so negative about this, So, but I will say that I think that, um, you know, people need to really, um, really understand that their dog's behavior, whether rightfully so or not, is a reflection of them. Um, and they also need to understand that when they take their dog um, out of the home and it interacts with the rest of the world, or when they have visitors come into their home and allow their dog to interact, that their dog again, whether it's, it's fair or not, is in many ways also an ambassador for dogs in general um, and for individual breeds and types of dogs. So, you know, when you walk down the street with, you know, a dog of a certain type and you let it drag you down the street and let the leash go six to eight feet away 
and it almost tripped somebody and you just kind of walked down the street talking on your cell phone with your dog. You know, I, I do wish that people would understand that, you know, that does not bode well for dogs in general being um, more readily accepted in society um, and getting more privileges. So I think that one of the major expectations I have for people is that they respect the fact that, um, you know, having a dog is a privilege um, and I think that people really need to take that seriously and recognize that every time they bring their dog out into the world, their dog is a reflection on dogs in general. I really like that point. Thank you for bringing that up. It's just, uh, you know, yes, I mean, when I, that's one of the reasons when I'm out and about on, on walks, I pick up other dogs' poop all the time because um, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it is a reflection. I mean, this is my neighborhood. I'm walking my dogs, and people see me walking my dogs, and if they see poop or step in poop in the neighborhood, there's... There's a chance they'll blame me, but regardless, they're going to blame a dog owner. And um, you know, I, I don't. I want dogs to gain privileges in our society, not lose them. You know, I, we don't exactly. want to lose dog parks or, you know, or access to cafes, things like that. So that's that's really important. I don't think it's yeah, negative. I think, another, I, think it's I think another thing that's really important is, um, I, you know, I I wish that people would have a better sense that, um, you know, do, we're very very lucky to have. Um, developed over so many thousands of years um, what can truly be said to be one of the best possible friendships ever, which is a friendship with, you know, one or more dogs in your life. But I think that um, a big part of why those friendships are so wonderful, I think dogs need to be given a lot of credit because they tend to have really good bounce back. They tend to be incredibly forgiving of our faults and our mistakes, especially in regards to our approach to teaching them. Um, and with that said, I think that at the core of developing a really good relationship with your dog and developing a dog who's mannerly is really trust. And I, I think that sometimes, again, it, you know, it all comes back to the same initial point, which is that people are under the assumption that a dog is, you know, just automatically going to trust you. And to some degree, that's true because they're such social creatures. They are inclined to seek out social relationships and to bond fairly quickly. But I think that um, it's really unfair to um, to sort of make that base sort of almost instinctual trusting nature of a dog shaky um, by doing things to them that are unfair or unkind. Um, and, you know, with that said, I think one of the things that people do on a regular basis that's unfair is that they use approaches to training that, um, that really are all about allowing the dog to make mistakes and then following up those mistakes with corrections or punishments, mm -hmm. which... You know, it's just, I mean, I'm always shocked when I see somebody walking down the street yanking on their dog or yelling at it or shoving it, you know, and the dog looks kind of cowed or, um, and then they take, you know, five or 10 steps more and, and the dog, you know, does these adorable little appeasement gestures, almost trying to say like, I'm sorry, with a soft little waggy tail. And I think, wow, if one of my friends treated me the way that that person just treated their dog, I think it would take me a little more than a few seconds to be that forgiving. Yes, and it also brings up the point that people tend to focus on and and give feedback on the negative behavior rather than the positive behavior. So a dog that's looking at you and, and having a little soft tail wag and, you know, trotting by your side gets no uh, no reinforcement most of the time versus when they're pulling, you know, they do get, they do get kind of yanked back. So I think uh, maybe one of the expectations for humans is to not notice good behavior or do we even go further than that and dare we say train in? proactively and request good behavior? Yeah, I definitely, I mean, I think, um, again, it's the assumption that dogs naturally, you know, know what it is we want. Um, 
But I also think that one of the most important things, um, and having been a person who I guess I, I would call myself a crossover trainer, I was somebody who, you know, initially was schooled in a more traditional approach to teaching dogs, which was very much about, um, you know, corrections and punishments and, you know, saying no to the dog and all this sort of stuff. And I, at this point in my life, it's, I, I'm glad I had that experience, even though I regret, um, you know, the way I might have treated dogs in the past. Um, who thankfully were very forgiving creatures, but I, it's very hard for me to look at people who use that approach, um, and not wonder how they can't recognize that, you know, whether it's because you consider it less humane to use a more traditional approach, um, or less effective in a nutshell for me, it's, it's less fun. Like you really should be having fun while you're teaching your dog because I mean, isn't that why we have dogs as part of our lives? Absolutely. I, I, it's, a, it's a funny little mindset, isn't it? I mean, we get dogs to be our friends and our companions. And then, we're, you know, sometimes in, in some circles, you're told that you must, you know, dominate or control your dog and that you're not friends. But they, they almost set you up to be your dog's adversary. And it just it is really counterintuitive to what what companion dog you know, you know, ownership and is, I think. So, good point. Very good point. Yeah. Sounds like you've got Chewbacca in the background there or something. You have a little creature in the room with you? We have a lot of creatures in the room. I'm in the office upstairs at the shelter, so we have we have dogs all around. Oh, they're being so quiet. <laughs> they're being so good. Well, one, of the, one of the noises you might be hearing is one of the two Brussels griffons. So, yes, they're kind of like Chewbacca's. <laughs> oh, so cute. Ah, see, I knew I was right there. Okay, let's see. So we have... Um, We've come, you know, we've covered what we expect from dogs and somewhat how we would expect humans to to convey that to dogs. I don't know. Do you want to talk a little bit about setting dogs up for success or management before we wrap up? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's aside from impulse control, management is probably one of the things I talk more about than anything else in my entire life. I feel like every day I have a management conversation twenty or thirty times, um, and I, I think it's because. The way that I look at, at raising a dog is I break it down into two categories, management and training. Um, and the management to me, especially with, with younger dogs, is far more pressing of a concern than the actual training, such as teaching the dog to sit and to lie down. Um, and the reason for that is because I think by using things like on-leash supervision, that is keeping your dog on a leash at all times when you're home with them until you're confident that they're not going to make mistakes, and using a crate for short periods of time to teach the dog um, to inhibit their bladder and bowel movements and also to spend time passively and quietly alone. Um, I think what you're doing is you're making the process of teaching your dog how to be a great companion dog so much easier because you're not allowing them to make mistakes that no matter how sweet of a person you are, no matter how much you've chosen to take an approach that's very dog friendly, you know, you can't not be upset when you come home to find that your dog has piddled or pooed on the carpet or has chewed up your favorite shoes. So why not make it incredibly easy on both of you um, by just not allowing the dog to engage in behaviors you don't like? You know, to me, it's just common sense. And, and you, earlier, you mentioned how people sometimes feel guilty about that. And I think, you know, it's important to, for people to remember that the, the dogs don't have the expectations that we do about how to live in the household. And they are little cave-dwelling creatures. They don't mind their crates. And that if we do this prevention up front, what we're doing is we're helping them to earn a lifetime of freedom and, you know, and in, in the house, right? I mean, a little bit of it's, it really is an ounce of prevention, you know? Absolutely. I mean, I will say that in my own life, I don't like to think too far into the future because it's a little too scary. But when it comes to, to raising dogs, I try to explain to people that 
that period of time where you first get a dog, the first, you know, let's say six months, is over so fast. And allowing a dog to have lots and lots of freedom during that time may feel like you're being this really wonderful, responsible pet parent who's super kind and indulgent. But ultimately, you know, we want to have dogs in our lives for 10 or 15 years, or in some cases, even longer. So why not consider that being a little restrictive or a lot restrictive and setting very clear boundaries and using management at the beginning of the dog's life with your family really means that they're going to have the next 10 or 15 years where they're going to have so much freedom and so much access to all the things they want because you've set the tone for what you want, which will then you know, be the foundation for the rest of their lives. You've helped them to develop good habits and prevented bad ones from forming, and I think ultimately that's, that's the key. Yes. I mean, I, I will say that I'm, I'm sure you've heard this term, um, the shut-the-door theory, um, <laughs> which is essentially, you know, when people say things to you like, um, you know, my dog is going to the bathroom on my bed, and he's ruined five or six comforters, and I spent all this money, and it's so frustrating. You know, the very first thing I, I say to people <laughs> when they say that is, well, have you considered shutting the bedroom door? Yeah. <laughs> because, I mean, really, if I had a really nice comforter I, and I knew my dog was going to go to the bathroom on it, odds are I wouldn't leave that house and allow my dog to go running into that room and potentially do it again. So number one, first thing you do is, you know, manage the situation so that your dog is not given an opportunity to practice something because, you know, practice makes perfect. Uh, and so this, simple and so perfect. elegant, isn't it? <laughs> What'd you say? Sorry. So simple, so elegant. Shut the door. Yes, so simple. <laughs> I love it. So where can we find – you have a new book out, don't you? Where can we find all this information? So, I mean, we've, we've covered a lot in this, in this time, in this short time frame, but um, there's so much more to it. And I love how your mind works you know, with, in regards to training and management and the relationship between people and their dogs. So if people would like to hear more from you, how do they do so? Well, they um, they can read my new book, which is called Baron's Dog Training Bible, which just came out a few days ago. It's very exciting. And also, my website is andreaarden.com, and I have a blog there where I write articles every day. Oh, do you? are you writing every day? Every single day, Kelly. Oh. Am I making you, am I making oh, you feel a little motivated? putting me to shame. <laughs> I've been terrible that way. Terrible. Not to mention a book, a new book at, the, at that. Um, I like the way the book is outlined. Uh, do you have any any? Anything you'd like to say about about the the organization of the book or how you put that together before we wrap up here? I, I, it, it's brand new, hot up the presses, and I'm so I'm so happy to be able to talk to you right at the you know at the launch for this this very cool yeah. resource. Well, I think um, I think probably one of the I, I'm sure you know when you're writing one of the hardest things is you know we all have lots of ideas we want to express, but one of the hardest things is organization, especially when it comes to a book where you want to say so much, you want to try and give a lot of good advice, but you know, sometimes information overlaps, so it is hard to organize it. But um, I think one of the things that I'm happiest about about the book is the impulse control chapter. That you know, I, I think I think you would agree that most trainers I know have come to recognize that at the core of mannerly behavior is really helping dogs to learn impulse control or self control. Um, it's the way to really set a foundation for preventing issues like pulling on leash, jumping on visitors, grabbing food off of counters, excessive barking. Um, all of those things, when a dog indulges in those behaviors to an extreme, I think really indicate that the dog has not been given the benefit of learning impulse control. No, oh, good point. Oh. Very good point. Well, um, I look, I very much look forward to reading this book and, and now also your daily blogs. 
So I'm going to have to <laughs> check that out and uh, start whipping some out myself. Okay, one last don't, question. Don't feel, so bad. don't feel so bad, Kelly, because really what that means, I think it's an indication that my social life is waning. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I think you can probably do both. Okay, one last question for me on that. Are you writing every day or do you write in chunks and then post every day? Or is that a trade secret that you can't give away? No, no, no. I actually, um, I tend to work on, it's funny, I tend to work on maybe like five or six blogs a week and I, you know, like on a Sunday night, I'll play around with them. Um, so yeah, I'm basically working on them, you know, a bunch at a time and then I post them throughout the week. Nice. Okay. Good to know. Yeah. Good to know. Yeah. Just a little tip for me here. <laughs> Want to get something out of it too. All right. Well, thank you so very much for taking time to, to speak with me today and, uh, hopefully you'll, you'll join us during the week for, um, for, you know, Q&A and, and comments if, if people have any. Absolutely, yeah. So, And thank you very much, Kelly. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. It's been a conversation. <laughs> <laughs> My pleasure. Thanks again, and we'll chat soon. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.